Welcome, AP Lit students. I'm Mrs. Kerwin, and life is literature. In episode two of Life is Literature, we're going to take some time to examine tortured souls and tension. These are a couple of ideas that I've had on my mind lately in our discussions of Tess of the Durbervilles. I've been thinking about how Thomas Hardy created engaged and invested readers. While Netflix and Amazon Prime Video didn't exist in Hardy's day, something else did that was almost as exciting. Serialized released versions of novels. Early novelists, like the Victorian writers, knew that if they wanted people to read their fiction, they had to create excitement and interest. They also knew that many of their readers did not have the money to purchase full-length novels. So, writers had to be creative in their ability to gain readers and keep them. Writers began to publish chapters at a time, sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month. Readers could afford the regular installments, and writers made money consistently. These British writers knew that each chapter had to engage the reader as a single unit as well as work within the context of the whole novel. These serialized novels could be compared to popular Netflix series. Readers grew to care about the stories they were reading and could hardly wait for an installment to drop, much like viewers anticipate a new season dropping in our day and age. So this partnership of reader-writer engagement begs the question, how did writers get readers to care? How did those writers get readers to commit their hard-earned pennies? The answer lies in the writer's abilities to create stories with believable characters and authentic life experiences. In other words, life became literature. This leads us to Tess, a character often considered the most tragic heroine in all of literature. When you consider the course of her life, the ongoing challenges she bears, and her abrupt, youthful end. Her story is certainly tragic, and most of us find her life much more dramatic than our own. She becomes that character that we all read about and feel relief upon reflection that our lives are not quite so torturous. In fact, we might find ourselves describing Tess as a tortured young woman who navigates a series of unbearable circumstances before she is prepared to encounter the world. 
I don't know about you, but I rarely use the word tortured. There is an intensity and gravity associated with it, reserved for few people. And yet we know individuals like Tess. Individuals who are tortured souls. We've met them before. They are well-intentioned, with good hearts. They've experienced an abundance of the unspeakable. And they often try to find a way out of dreadful misery, solely on their own. Tortured souls are frequently isolated, sometimes loners. They struggle to ask for help because they don't want to pull others into their web of despair. Keeping all these ideas in mind, we begin to consider the statement that Hardy's narrator offers early in the novel. Thus the thing began. Imagine reading that statement as a reader of Hardy's. You know the drama is coming. The vague, nebulous use of thing hangs ominously and seems to imply that fate has taken the wheel. And Hardy knows how to spin the tale. The story unwinds and whirls out of control, proof that Tess is worthy of tortured soul status. After all, doesn't she tell her younger brother Abraham that they live on a blighted star? This suggestion that fate is at work begs the question, do tortured souls have any control over anything? Or perhaps the bigger question which grows from this one conundrum is simply, what is at the root of the tortured soul's struggle? What is it about the human condition that constantly keeps the tortured soul from moving beyond a web of despair? Somehow, we keep reading, especially when our English teacher has assigned the novel for homework. But ultimately, we start to care. We've seen writers tap into the tortured soul archetype before. We become curious and wonder how this story is going to play out. We wonder if someone else really is living a worse life than our own. Maybe we recognize Gatsby. Maybe Rochester from Jane Eyre. Maybe Oedipus or King Lear. What about Connie? from Oates's short story, or Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown. What about Willie Loman? Or better yet, has Willie Loman's son Biff entered this class of characters yet? Is Biff on the brink of tortured soul status? And similarly, as we are soon to dive into our discussion of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, we should be asking ourselves, is there a tortured soul in this text?
Now, to come to a place of understanding about the tortured soul, we might consider more of what tortured souls have in common. How do they affect those around them? Are tortured souls only one type of people? If we gave the Enneagram to the tortured soul, would their type be a one or a two or a four or a six or maybe even an eight? Better yet, how are others affected by the tortured soul? Do tortured souls take advantage of those they surround themselves with? Maybe by considering these questions, we could come to a better understanding of what classifies someone as a tortured soul. I sense a full class discussion coming. Of course, by this point, the question that may arise involves what does it matter? How does recognizing a tortured soul help any of us? Isn't rehashing someone's misery a way to pull us all into a great chasm of negativity? And that might be one way to look at it. Indeed, some people would say that all of us are tortured souls at some point or another. Are you startled by that statement? Are you taking a second look at yourself in the literary mirror are all of us tortured souls at some point? Is a tortured soul's status permanent? Or can it be temporary? How does one person work through this status while others never do? Perhaps true tortured souls struggle with how to respond to the situations in which they find themselves. Perhaps... True tortured souls find an impediment that blocks their ability to move forward, to grow. Oh, definitely a discussion is needed. Just when we think that writers like Hardy relied solely on creating dramatic characters to draw readers in. We recognize another way that writers create reader investment. Tension. Tension is one of those funny words that depending on the arena you are standing in, can have different meanings. For example, in physics, we find that physical objects exerting force on each other creates tension. In business, leaders are always looking at tension in three areas. Profit versus growth, short-term versus long-term, the whole company versus the parts. In psychology, we see fight versus flight. Even in our bodies, we feel tension. Now, if you're like me, 
you may not like tension. It's uncomfortable. It causes us to fidget and pace. It keeps me up at night, which isn't good when I'm only getting five hours of sleep. Trust me, women. Being 50 already contributes to a lack of sleep. However, one thing I have learned in all my 50 years of wisdom is this. Conflict or confrontation is good for something. And I'm not a confrontational person. Some sort of confrontation is almost always the way to relieve or reconcile tension. A good friend about 10 years ago taught me that confrontation, tension, conflict, any of those words, help us to figure out what we value, what we believe, what truth we choose to see and live. Confrontation or tension is a reminder that we are alive and that we still care about living our life. Depending on the way a writer weaves a story, we can observe tension at work. It takes some time for the writer to create it. In a novel, play, or short story, a writer may tap into the exposition. She may set the stage from the opening paragraph. Pay attention to beginnings, friends. Writers are very intentional. From the moment you begin a work, a writer is going to send the reader all kinds of signals. Look at Tess. In the beginning, Tess's father learns about his identity. He is warped by this perception of ancestors who were once great nobles. And can't we say that Tess's story is about her own journey of identity? A journey that shows her a warped, broken self. A broken self whose foundation is rooted in her broken, flawed family. Heck, Tess even contributes to this warped identity. Who do you know that willingly cuts off her eyebrows and butchers her hair to diminish any possibility that she is beautiful or attractive? Who do you know that gets to a place in her life where the only solution she sees to remove an unbearable tension. A man who sexually assaulted her is to murder him. Tess ultimately follows in her ancestors' footprints.
if we had to narrow the concept of tension down to a singular phrase, it would be opposing forces. Where do we see opposing forces or contradictions in a work of literature? What does that opposing force or contradiction reveal? Do you want the short answer? It's paradox. In literature, a paradox is a contradiction of ideas or terms that reveals a truth. Easy, right? Not so fast. Let's step back to our ideas about tortured souls. What happens when a tortured soul experiences tension? She faces conflict. Conflict inside of herself. Conflict in relationships with others, like family, friends. Her next-door neighbor, who might just be texting biblical passages that incite guilt. She faces conflict in society, the culture in which she lives. That society, that culture, may even include a religion, a church that the writer is calling into question. That tortured soul, she faces conflict in the natural world. Things like severe cold or storms. Hurricanes. Remember, if you stand in the eye, it's calm. Meteors on a crash course for Earth. Okay, so maybe Tess doesn't deal with hurricanes or meteors. But it sure does feel like it at times. Somewhere in those conflicts where tension has built, we the readers hear the great clashing of gongs and drums and enraged, elevated voices. Maybe even a child yelling at her parent. Yes, a discovery of truth is made. That discovery might be the path of descent is the path to transformation. Or, one must experience powerlessness to responsibly acquire and use power. Or, when we move from the particular to universal, we grow in our worldly understanding. Or, the coexistence of the absurd and the sublime show us how bitter realities and beautiful perspectives can coexist. Or, muddy, murky, messy conflict offers both discomfort and dread alongside clarity and enlightenment.
One of my favorite Franciscan priests, Richard Rohr, says that we live in a both and world. The coexistence of competing ideas helps us discover rich, deep, great truths about our life experiences. These life experiences become not just our stories, but stories about the universal human experience. So the next time you notice or observe tension in a story, consider what's at stake. What opposing forces are at work? In the midst of contradictions, what's the truth to be found? Until next time, AP Lit students, remember, life is literature and literature is life. Live it, read it, embrace it. What are you waiting for? <laughs>